And turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. I'm going to read briefly this morning from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. This passage will provide us with a little bit of context for our sermon passage. We'll be preaching this morning from Acts chapter 28 in just a moment. The final chapter, the final story, the final verses of the book of Acts. But we'll be looking at that in just a moment. First, let's read from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. You're now the word of the Lord. Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and had made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, The Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, king shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, and even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his affliction. Amen. And amen. This is one of those passages from the prophet Isaiah we call the servant songs. 
It's the beginning of it. Where the servant is first heralded by God as coming into the world. Notice that the servant begins in verses 3 and 4 with a sense of frustration. That he has come into the world but not achieved his mission. To put it in John's words, he came to his own but his own did not receive him. He spent his strength in vain and for nothing. But his hope is in the Lord. This passage has been a prominent part of my ministry. For eight years, Bruce Parnell and I sat in Oklahoma and quoted to one another verse 6. Jesus is too great and glorious to have one church in the state of Oklahoma. This morning, they are starting a second again. He is too good to be kept in the walls of this building. He is too wonderful to be contained in the silence of our hearts. And we who find our strength being spent on what seems to be nothing in vanity, we are wrong. For God has promised according to his covenant that kings shall worship, nations shall bow the knee, Christ will advance in glory and with grace, and the heavens and the earth will celebrate together. The praise of his name. Friends, with this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 28. We're going to read these final verses from Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Acts 28, verses 16 through 31. Paul has at last come to the city of Rome, his destination. He has at last completed his his journey, and now we will look this morning at his visit. Acts chapter 28, verses 16 through 31. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak to you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. 
So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing, you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing, you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. No one forbidding him. Amen. And amen. Sequels seldom live up to the originals, don't they? I bet you can think of some famous film examples that I'll leave unmentioned, where the sequels don't live up to the originals. They, they lack the genius. They lack the insight. They lack the storyline. We have, in this case, however, a sequel that, unlike most of Hollywood's offerings, that lives up to its predecessor. You see, this morning we come to Acts chapter 28, the final verses in the final chapter of this book through which we have gone over the past two years. But the book of Acts is a sequel. It is part two from the Gospel of Luke, which we went through the two years prior. So we are not only wrapping up this morning the two-year sermon series through the book of Acts, we are wrapping up the four-year sermon series through the book of Luke and Acts. And as we pull together all of these themes and ideas into this one text, truth be told, we're just following Luke who did it for us, we find that Luke has indeed woven together this masterpiece this presentation of one essential truth on which we must hang the future of our souls and the welfare of our church. Jesus is King. From the angelic announcement in Luke chapter 1 to the apostolic preaching here in Acts 28, Luke has embedded in story after story, parable after parable, this truth. Jesus is king. What do we do with that? How should we respond? Well, gratefully, Luke, like a master presenter, like a master author, sets before us a text that gives us six sequential responses. As we move through these, it is my sincere hope they all sound familiar. Things you perhaps have heard one time or another over the last four years. Let's begin. Jesus is king. Notice in verses 16 and 17 
that if Jesus is king, then Jesus' people should rest. We see in verse 16 that the Apostle Paul has finally arrived in Rome. This journey has taken over two years, like this sermon series. He has been shipwrecked. Hopefully that didn't happen here. He has been arrested and held in jail in Caesarea. He has been under chain and guard by the Roman soldiers. And when he finally arrives in this big imperial city, he must find his house. How many of you can relate to the Apostle Paul? Finding a house in a big, expensive city. This was probably not an easy undertaking. This was probably an expensive effort. In fact, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul celebrates the timely arrival of Aphroditus with a big bag of money, which is probably helping cover his rent. Because it's hard to rent a room in Rome. It's an expensive city. But having secured dwelling... And having, oh, by the way, paid the Roman soldier who has to sit with him 24-7. He has this rotation of bodyguards who has to come through his house to keep him from running away. Paul, in verse 17, is at last ready to undertake that mission for which he has come. More than two late years he has labored for this moment. Through shipwreck and imprisonment, he has labored for this moment. At great expense, he has secured a house and a soldier for this moment. And at last, the hour has come. And what does he do? Verse 17. And it came to pass after three days. Paul takes a break. Paul begins his great Roman evangelistic effort with a three-day weekend. He pauses. He takes a deep breath. He rests. He takes three days before he engages with the local community. This number is, of course, intentional, not accidental. The Apostle Paul's long journey has finally brought him to where he wishes to be. But he knows that the church's effort is not born out of strategy, it is not born out of planning. It is not born out of the boardroom. He knows that it does not come out of strength and exertion and willpower and discipline. All those things that we wish to put at the forefront of our efforts. Paul says, no, Christ is king. So we begin with rest. Ever since Jesus Christ arose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever, ever since Jesus arose into the heavenly places and was seated at the right hand of God to rule and reign forever. We, the Christian church, have begun our work week with a day of rest. If we believe that Jesus is running and ruling this world, then we need not work up constant worry. We need not strive and exercise our might. We can rest. We begin our efforts with Sabbath keeping. Four years ago, a little over four years ago, I was preparing to move here for a call and I asked a trusted, experienced New England Reformed Presbyterian pastor who will remain nameless for a list of books to read. That's a joke because there's only one. And he made this list of good books to read. 
as I prepared to become pastor in Cambridge. And on it was Moby Dick, which turns out he hasn't read. <laughs> I read Moby Dick, and I found this extraordinary moment in which Herman Melville notes that while the ship approaching the whale is all of this angst and turmoil, pulling on ropes, bringing up sails, turning the ship this way and that, and all the officers are running about shouting orders. There's one weird, dissonant dude who sits in the very front of the ship holding a big, long harpoon, and he is perfectly calm and still. Because an accurate and energetic thrust must come from rest and not frantic and frenetic energy. Beloved, we must learn to keep the Sabbath day whole. We are burnt out, depressed, and exhausted because we don't rest. Friends, let us rest. If Christ is enthroned in heaven high, then we need not fix every problem that comes. We need not answer every question that comes. We can trust our king to rule, to reign, to make all things right. And we can rest. But secondly, notice that it is out of this three-day rest that Paul brings together the leaders of the Jews into his home so that he might speak to them about his presence there and give them a reason. And notice secondly that because Christ is king, the reason for his coming is, in fact, the hope of Israel. You see, Paul gives this little paragraph by which he introduces the journey he has been on for over two years. In verses 17, rather, verse 17, he explains to them the role of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in bringing him to Rome. He says that though he had done nothing wrong against the customs or against the people, yet they delivered him from Jerusalem to Rome. He acknowledges the role of the Jewish nation in betraying him, a Jew, and turning him over into the hands of the Romans. Paul's language here in verse 17 is creating an intentional parallel between him and Jesus Christ who was arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem, having done nothing wrong. In his innocence, Jesus was imprisoned and turned over to the Romans. Paul shows that he is following Christ and is mirroring his experience. This is further exemplified in verse 18, that the Romans, having examined Paul, found him innocent and not worthy of death. In like manner, before Paul, Jesus Christ was examined by Pontius Pilate and found innocent and not worthy of death. So then thirdly, Paul says that he was forced, wedged between the murderous hatred of the Jews and the innocent but indifferent Romans, Paul is forced to escape this pressure cooker by appealing to Caesar. Though he notes in verse 8, 19, I have nothing about which to accuse my nation. Paul explains the dynamics of Jerusalem, Jew versus Roman. The same exact dynamics that had brought about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
But Paul notes there's a slight difference in his story. He doesn't say, I was a Roman citizen, so I had to get out of jail free card. Though he could have said that. Instead, he says in verse 20, For this reason I called you all to come together, so that I could see you and speak with you, because I am here for the hope of Israel. Paul explains that the two-year ordeal with its shipwreck and its imprisonment and its murderous intentions was not bound up in the malicious will of the Jewish people. It was not bound up in the incompetence and indifference of the Romans. No, it was rooted in their need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul in Rome? Because they need hope. Because the Romans need Jesus. Beloved, why are we on Antrim Street? Is it an accident of history that we happen to be here 126 years and we're either too poor or lazy to move? No, my friends. We are here because Jesus has handpicked those houses and neighbors to hear about hope. To hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Why is your address your address? Why do you live where you live and work where you work? Why do you play where you play and pray and eat where you pray and eat? My friends, you are planted through the wisdom of a king in heaven that you should deliver to those relationships, peoples, and neighborhoods hope. That you should be light in the darkness, salt in the decay. If we believe there is a king in heaven, then we begin our weeks with rest. But we bear into our Monday through Saturday week work hope. We should go to our work as those who have hope. We should go to our homes as those who have hope. Who say the reason I rise on Monday morning and go to the office is the hope of God in Christ. I'm not here for a paycheck. I'm here for the grace and glory of God in Christ. I rise. I fall down. Because I have hope. This is what it is to be one who has seen Christ enthroned on high. Do you believe Jesus is King? Then for two books now, Luke has been saying to us, rest. And have hope. Have hope burning in your heart. Have hope driving and motivating and animating your life. But then thirdly, we see that out of this rest, out of this hope, Paul has opportunity to wait. This isn't a popular one either, is it? We don't like this one. We're a busy culture. In verse 21, they say to him, What first that they have received neither letter nor report concerning Paul? They say that they are ignorant of Paul. They don't know anything about him. They haven't heard anything bad about him, so they're, they're not inclined to just silence him. There's no bad report, no bad letter that would cause them to ignore him or shun him. Secondly, in verse 21, they say that, or verse 22 rather, they say that they want to actually hear from him because everywhere this sect has been spoken against, they have this bad report about Jesus. So if you take this ignorance about Paul and this ill report about Jesus, you find that they are a curious people in verse 22. We, we desire to hear from you. 
We don't know who you are or where you're from. We are ignorant of you. But we know about this Jesus figure. We've heard a lot about him, and frankly, it's not very good. They have this ignorance about Paul and this abundance of, can I borrow the phrase, fake news about Jesus. They have all this ill-informed news about Jesus. And so they say, let us hear. We are curious. Notice again, like in verse 17, there at the beginning of verse 23, the Apostle Paul seizes on their ignorance, right? Now when it says there at the beginning of verse 23, they say, well, we don't know anything about you. And Paul goes, oh, well, let me tell you about myself. I have a fascinating life story. Let me tell you. No, he doesn't do that, does he? They say to him, oh, we've heard lots of bad news about Jesus. We've heard that this, this way, this sect, that's, that's a bad thing. And Paul goes, well, let me stop you right there. Let me correct that. I'll give you the truth. No, he doesn't do that, does he? They say, you know what? We're interested. We desire to hear from you. We're curious. And, and Paul says, all right, let's do it. Come on, let's put it on the calendar. Paul doesn't say that either, does he? In verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day. Paul waits. Eager to answer their ignorance, he waits. Eager to correct their misinformation about Jesus, he waits. Eager to take advantage of their interest and their curiosity, Paul waits. Beloved, if we have a king in heaven who knows what he's doing and his timing is always right on the money, why are we in such a hurry? Why are we always worried about deadlines? Why are we always filling our calendars to the max? I submit to you, we live in a society that feels that every answer must come in either a toaster or microwave timeline. Let's hit a few buttons, let's push a lever, and then pop it up a few seconds later, and that's it, we're good to go. Friends, we need to cultivate a slow cooker mentality. We need to invest not minutes, hours, days, weeks, years. Have you seen the difference between the kind of evangelism that like a toaster just sort of immerses someone in the truth and hopes they pop out a Christian? Or have you seen that kind of evangelism that marinates the sinful soul in love and lets it soak in truth and lets the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in His time when He's ready? Because He is the King. Beloved, if Jesus is our king, we begin our weeks with rest. If Jesus is our king, then we work throughout the week in hope, in the hope that he will overcome. Beloved, if we have Jesus as king, then we are willing to wait. We are willing for him to work and to let him present us with the divine opportunity. There was a young lady who worked in a coffee shop in Enid, Oklahoma. For two years, we prayed for her. For two years, we bought coffee from her. And we waited. And we waited. And one day, I walked into the coffee shop and I said, how are you doing? 
And she burst into tears and begged me to tell her the gospel. Because Jesus had appointed the dead. He knew that day was coming. He had assigned that day. Beloved, we must have patient hearts willing to wait. And we have a king who is worth the wait. A king who will deliver on all his promises. And this brings us then to the next point. The Apostle Paul, having the appointed day come, points them to the promise-keeping Christ. That is to say, if we have Christ as a king, then let us rest, let us hope, let us wait, and when the time comes, let us talk. In verse 23, many have come to him in his lodging. It's a great audience filling all his rented house. Notice also it's a mixed audience. He cannot excuse the Roman guards who are to be with him 24-7. This is a wonderful opportunity. Jews and Gentiles have to smash it together in Paul's house. This is playing to his advantage. As they are all there assembled, he rises to speak and says, This is the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ who fulfills the law of Moses and the prophets. He delivers to them this truth and content, this wisdom and insight. There is a kingdom and it has come. There is a king and he has delivered to us the kingdom. This Jesus who has fulfilled the law of Moses. Paul here preaches not the, simply the cessation of the law of Moses, but rather its fullness, its perfection and completion in the, perfect, in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is from the law of Moses because he has kept the law of Moses. He is our righteousness. He has delivered obedience to his heavenly Father on our behalf. But likewise, Paul preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets. Those who have preached His coming have seen the day rising like the dawn. And Jesus is the promise kept, the promise fulfilled. All for which your hearts have longed, all for which the world has worked and looked. He is the crux of history. And He has brought together a new humanity into the new heavens and the new earth. This is the meaning of the Apostle Paul's phrase, the kingdom of God. It means this renovation of a fallen cosmos. The resurrection of a human race fallen perilously into death, into, de into sin and condemnation. It has come alive again in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, the kingdom of God. But notice this wealth of insight. This wealth of teaching. That Jesus is the fountain of a new humanity. Jesus is the head of a church and a king and a kingdom, the keeper of the law, the fulfiller of the covenant, the promised one. But he doesn't also notice through very careful means. It says in verse 23 that he explains these things to them. That is, he teaches it. In the Greek, it has this literal flavor of he opens it up and shows it to them. Here is each piece. It is reminiscent of what Jesus himself did on the road to Emmaus. Where he took his two disciples on that first resurrection Sunday and went piece by piece through the Old Testament and said, Here I am. 
Here I am. Here I am. Paul, in like manner, opens the word of God to the people and says, Here is Jesus. Behold, your Christ. But secondly, he testifies to them. He doesn't merely teach them. He doesn't just give them the information, though he does that. He also testifies to it. He asserts it as truth. He declares it to be reality, something to be believed and assented to. And then thirdly, in verse 23, he seeks to persuade them, to convince them, to compel them. The word can actually be translated seduce. He seeks to seduce them, to draw them into the truth of what he is saying. Friends, we must beware for very often in the Christian experience, there are those of us who so love the giving of information we stop at teaching. And we do not present Christ in a compelling manner. We just kind of slap him out there and say, here are the facts. Paul is not so cheap with the gospel. He presents the teaching, the truth of Jesus, but he does it in a compelling and forceful manner. Likewise, we must beware of that side of the Christian faith that is prone to being emotionally manipulative and leaving out the truth. And failing to make claims on the sound doctrines. No, my beloved friends, let us be wholehearted, whole-minded Christians. Resolve to teach the truth in all of its glory and fullness. Resolve to testify, to impress people with the reality. Resolve to persuade, to convince, to win over the hearts of others. Because Christ is King and worthy of such effort. You see, it is out of this rest, it is out of this patience, it is out of this hope that the Apostle Paul here springs with such intensity and passion because he is well fortified with the royal rest, the royal hope, the royal patience that the gospel has given him. Paul is now ready here to exert himself. And exerts himself, he does. He gives them the rich vision of Christ, crucified and yet raised from the dead. He gives them the rich vision of Christ, teaching, testifying, and persuading. This is Christ. Now, for all this enthusiasm and for all this excitement, Paul produces a very normal response. Like every other story of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he gets some who believe and some who don't. It's just the same. There's nothing new or exciting here in the city of Rome. Nothing new under the sun. Being in the big metropolitan area didn't help. Being in the heart of the empire didn't change anything. Some were persuaded and some were not. And it's to this context that Paul then gives us our fifth Response to Christ as King. We are to rest. We are to hope. We are to wait. We are to talk. And specifically, we are to talk constantly about Christ. You see, Paul points them, as they are headed to the door, to one quote from Isaiah, chapter 6, in which he applies Isaiah's words to his present audience. You have heard me, but you have not believed me. You have seen me, but you have not believed me. 
Your heart has grasped the significance and the impact of my words, but you have not believed me. But the Apostle Paul is not quoting these few verses from Isaiah 6 because he wants to divorce them from their original context, because they're suitable language for his present intention. No, friends, he's quoting from Isaiah 6 because he wants his audience to remember what comes just before and just after these verses. You see, the first part of Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's calling to be a prophet. Where he saw the Lord God high and lifted up, exalted and majestic with his glory filling the temple. And how did the Apostle Paul become an apostle? He saw Jesus Christ high and lifted up, exalted with his glory filling not the temple but the whole earth. Isaiah saw that Old Testament little sliver of light fill the temple and it made Isaiah a lifelong prophet. Paul, by contrast, on the road to Damascus, saw the heavenly glory of Jesus Christ that outshone the noonday sun. And from that glory of Christ, Paul became a lifelong apostle. He is the new covenant Isaiah. Preaching Christ to those who would not listen. Is not the book of Acts the ancient testimony Paul preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He preached to those who saw Jesus but wouldn't believe him. To those who heard Jesus but wouldn't trust him. To those who felt the reality of Christ in their hearts but would not lean on him for their salvation. Do you know what comes right after these verses in Isaiah 6? The chapter ends with these horrific words. And Jerusalem will fall. You will not hear my prophet Isaiah. In unbelief, in hardness of heart, in stiffness of neck, you will not believe in the coming Christ. And so Jerusalem will fall. The Babylonians will come and lay waste the city. When the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28, in the very heart of Rome, at the very end of the apostolic mission, quotes Isaiah 6, he is telling the Jewish nation once and for all, you're done. The old covenant is over. Christ has come. There is a new Jerusalem. There is a new humanity. There is a new heavens and a new earth. We now preach Jesus, the one high priest, not Aaron, not Levi. We now preach Jesus, not lambs and goats and rams and bulls, not blood sacrifices of animals without count or number. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus, not a city in the Middle East, but a city built without hands. We preach Jesus, not a piece of dirt between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, but the whole heavens and the whole earth renovated in grace and love and righteousness. We preach Jesus, says Paul, and if you will not have Jesus, you will not have a future. This is what Paul declares once and for all as the new prophet Isaiah, bringing to completion all those 40 years of warning. Let me make one last connection. Paul is in Rome. It's the late 60s AD. 
this is the last official apostolic message to the Jewish nation right before the Roman army show up and fulfill Isaiah 6. And fulfill Acts 28. My friends, there is no Levitical priesthood. My friends, there is no animal sacrifice system. My friends, there is only Jesus. There is only Jesus. So Paul concludes, therefore, let it be known that the salvation of God. How would you say that if you were speaking in Hebrew? The Yeshua of God. The Jesus of God. Let it be known to you salvation. Not as a doctrinal concept, but as a person who came and lived in history. Who bore our sins in his body on the tree. Who rose again from the dead and is now king forever in heaven. Let it be known to you that the salvation of God, that is Jesus Christ, he has been sent to the Gentiles Praise God, because you and I are those Gentiles. Amen. Why is there a church in Cambridge, friends? Because he wasn't to be held in Jerusalem. He was too great and glorious to come for one little city in the Middle East. He didn't come to redeem Jerusalem or one little people. He came to redeem a humanity, to redeem the whole new heavens and the whole new earth. And Cambridge is part of that plan. That's why we're here. Because the salvation of God, Jesus Christ, has been sent to the ends of the earth. Has been sent to the Gentiles. And notice these words of Paul. They should be ringing in our hearts and our ears as we go to work each week. As we go to our homes each night. As we rise each morning. And they will hear it. He doesn't promise us our neighbors and children will believe. He promises us that if we talk about Jesus with rest-filled, hope-filled, patient hearts, they will hear it. This, my friends, is what Luke and Acts is trying to drive into our souls, into our minds. This vision of the world in which Christ is high and lifted up. In which the glory of Christ, that is the gospel of Christ, is filling every heart, home, and street of the world. This is the dream. And we get to live it. We get to live in that dream. Where they will hear Jesus. Because we rest on Sunday. Because we work with hope Monday through Saturday. Because we wait patiently for Jesus all week long. And out of that rest, out of that hope, out of that patience, we talk. And we talk about Jesus. And they will hear it. Alright, one last thing. Verse 30 and 31. The last thing we must do because Jesus is our King. We must rest. We must hope. We must wait, we must talk, we must talk about Jesus. But lastly, we must persist. Verse 30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. 
Notice first of all in verse 30, Paul is in Rome in his rented house, that is house arrest, for two years. Same period of time that he was in Caesarea. How much progress is Paul making in this judicial case? This is starting to sound like the American judicial system, isn't it? Timely justice, right? Two years he rots in prison in Caesarea. Gets on a boat, shipwrecked, it's kind of a miserable journey. Finally he gets to Rome, and what's he did? Sits in house arrest for two years. I mean, if you put yourself in his, in his toga, in his robe for a minute, you put yourself in his sandals, do you know how we would feel? Jesus, you're doing nothing. You moved me from two years of house arrest in Caesarea to two years of house arrest in Rome. Jesus, we're not making progress here. You know what else strikes me as funny? I've been here for four years. And my selfish, sinful little heart is so tempted to look around and say, we're not making progress here, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. Persist. He receives all who came to him. There's hospitality. There's a warm welcome. He feeds them. He brings them in. He preaches the kingdom of God. He gives them Jesus crucified for sinners. Jesus raised from the dead and reigning forever. He teaches them the things about Jesus Christ. And notice these four lines, these four words that end the book of Luke, the book of Acts. No one forbidding him. No one. This classic Lucan understatement. You know, have you noticed that over the last four years? Luke tends to understate things enormously. No one forbids the Apostle Paul. He opens his house. He's a prisoner. He can't leave his house. How many of you have felt that way for the last two years? You're a prisoner and you can't leave your house. But you know what? You can talk about Jesus. And in comes this, this crowd for two years. Paul tells them about Jesus and tells them about Jesus. And where is Paul? He's in Rome. He's in the heart of the empire. He's in the seat of the emperor, waiting on his pleasure. And who is that emperor? Nero. What does that emperor do with every Christian he finds? He lights them like candles in his garden. He hangs them on crosses and dismembers their bodies. But even Nero, with all his worldly power, cannot silence the apostle. No one can silence talking about Jesus. The world, for thousands of years, has tried to hush these quiet conversations about Christ. And they cannot do it. They cannot do it. Back in the 1770s, we were fighting a little war with the Big Empire. Some of you maybe have heard about it. It began a couple miles that way. And there was this one guy who was born a couple miles that way. who made his home in Philadelphia. He was in France. His name was Benjamin Franklin. And all the French loved him. He was so funny. He was so witty. He was so popular. Meanwhile, he was pillaging their pockets to finance George Washington's army. One day, he was sitting in Versailles playing chess. 
He was playing with one of the ladies of the court. And as he struck the death blow, she laughed and said, Why, Mr. Franklin, you have put my king in check. Mr. Franklin leaned forward with his eyes alight with a big smile and said, Madam, soon I shall have all your kings in check. What is Paul doing in Rome? He's putting Nero in check. Friends, what are we doing in Boston? We are tearing down strongholds and destroying empires. We are waging war on the forces of darkness, and no one can silence us. No one can stop us. No one can forbid us. Why is the Church of Jesus Christ this irresistible force? So full of rest, so full of hope, so full of patience, so full of talk about Jesus. Because we have a king, and he outranks and outplays every other king on the board. This is Luke's message for us. Every turn of man, every plague has fallen prey to the wisdom and glory of God in Christ. No one forbids him. He is king. Beloved, Jesus is the king. Follow him. Do not be afraid. Jesus is the king. Follow him and do not be afraid. Follow him into these sweet Sabbath seasons of rest. Follow him into the work week with hope in your hearts. Follow him into those seasons of waiting and of patience. Follow him into those conversations about the gospel. Follow him to the bitter end. Because you will find it sweet and glorious and good. Beloved, Jesus is the king. Follow him and do not be afraid. Let's pray Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. For our beautiful Savior, we give you thanks that He is arisen from the dead, that in Him we might live forever. We give you thanks that He has ascended up into heaven, where He does rule and reign over us and all our world. We give you thanks that He is enthroned on high, and that all the kingdoms of this world are becoming His kingdom. And we pray, O oh God, that this confidence in Christ would sink deep into our hearts and transform our minds and bring forth from us a patient obedience, a willingness to rest, a diligence and excellence in pleasing Christ. Our Father, we thank you that he is our King. And we pray that you would make us a people who follow him and follow him faithfully without fear. We ask this in Jesus' name.